As we kind of start into a new school year, we're nearing the start of our, our usual service times, we are trying to, to set a, a vision or direction for where we're headed this year as a church. And I'd like to suggest that uh, among the, all the things we, we could do or, or make our priority this year, my hope is that at the center of what we're about, that we're growing into life, growing in, into the fullness of life. And this morning, I want to unpack a little bit about what that means and will look like in the coming year. One of the, the most primary human needs that we have is one we don't typically give much thought to, right? That we need life itself, right? Day in, day out, we take for granted that we're kind of given a fresh supply of being and existence and vitality. And usually we take that gift of life for granted until something starts to impinge upon it. And only then do we realize how significant and how desperately we need it. In his book called Being Mortal, and I know some of you have read it, we've talked about it. If you haven't, it's a great, great read on sort of the end of life and lifespan. In his book, Being Mortal, Atul Gawande uh, highlights the story of a physician in upstate New York. His name is Bill Thomas. And early in the 1990s, he was kind of fresh out of medical school, and he took a job as the medical director of a small nursing home in upstate New York, near Cortland, New York. And it became his job to think about the medical care of 80 elderly residents, most of whom had uh, severe cognitive disabilities and diseases, things like Alzheimer's or other uh, dementia and memory care issues. And he says that for the first several months in that position, he was discouraged and troubled because he would show up for work every day and he would step into what he felt like was a place that sort of lacked vitality, lacked life, lacked spirit and energy. And he was even more troubled by the contrast that that as he moved to that region of New York, he had bought a home just outside the city, and he lived on a farm, and and as he spent time on the farm, he was surrounded by animals and crops and and all this incredible abundance of life. And then every morning he would drive to the nursing home, he'd walk through the doors, and he was confronted with what he called the institutionalized absence of life. Right, patients struggling and, and there just seemed to be this 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 lack of life in that place and this troubled him until one morning he struck upon an idea and he started to implement a new experiment a new plan there at the nursing home and it started by bringing several truckloads worth of plants into and inside of the nursing home And then he went out and he bought a hundred parakeets with a hundred cages, enough so that every patient could have one in their room. And then the nursing home adopted two dogs and four cats to live in the nursing home full-time, 24-7. And then he invited his staff and and the workers of that nursing home to, to bring their children with them to work before or after school, just kind of just fill that place up with little kids. 
And, and suddenly there was all this new life within the nursing home, right? And, and chaos along with it, maybe. But Thomas's wager was that he could combat physical and cognitive decline by bringing as much life as he could find and, and putting it in the same space with these patients. And the result, they, they chose uh, after some time to actually statistically study if anything happened as a result. And Thomas says it was incredible. He said people that they believed were nonverbal, people they thought were incapable of speech, started speaking. People who had remained withdrawn and would only stay in their rooms and most of the time didn't even walk, right? didn't, didn't get up to, to ambulate during the day. They would come out to nurses' stations and they would ask to take one of the dogs for a walk around the nursing home. In the period they studied, the death rate at that nursing home declined by 15%, and the cost that patients were spending on drugs and medication fell by almost 75%, far less medicated. And incredibly, people were being physically and emotionally and cognitively restored simply by getting into close proximity with something that possessed Life, right, with other living people, other living creatures and, and things. And it almost seems too simple, right, too crazy to work, but incredibly, this, this is a model that was then replicated again and again across the country in, in uh, nursing and, and um, senior facilities. This morning, as we sort of head into this next ministry year, school year, My hope is that we might also be a place where people grow into life, recover life, are restored into health and significance and identity and a sense of purpose in who they are. And I guess we could do that in a variety of ways. We could try putting a lot of plants in the sanctuary and have you bring your pets to church. But I think we're probably already a little crazy in here on Sunday already. Or we could instead get into closer proximity with a person who claims he is life itself. Of course, that person is Jesus Christ. John, the the evangelist, when he wrote his gospel, focuses in on this idea of, of Jesus being the light of life. Jesus being the bread of life. Jesus being a, wa- a well of water that overflows or wells up unto eternal life. John says Jesus is the one who has life to the full. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And at the very end of John's gospel, he says he has come so that we might have life in his name. Right? If we want to grow into life, we need to be close to Jesus. We need to be a, a people who get close to Jesus. And to think about how we might do that as a church, I want to take a a snapshot, a brief passage from one of the Gospels. Just several verses in Luke chapter 6. And these verses sort of give us an image of what a day in the life of Jesus might have looked like if you were to get close to him and spend time with him and follow him around. And from the way that Jesus spends that day, I want to think about what practices, what priorities we might then have as people 
growing into life with him. Where and how does Jesus find life? So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Let me pray for us as we look into the word of God. Lord, you have given us the word of life. You have made that word into flesh and living person. Lord, you have brought your very life to dwell among us and even in us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you show us how we can follow you, how we can be attached to you, how we can root ourselves deeply into the things that that are enduring, are life-giving, are restoring, are healing. Lord, would you give us your life? Pray that as I teach now, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of each of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 19. And again, I want you to try and kind of get this into your imagination for this, this year, this 24-hour period, one day in the life of Jesus. Luke says, during this time, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. We see Jesus pursuing life in several different ways in this brief account. And to put a little context around chapter 6 here, this is still very early in Jesus' days of ministry in the Galilee. And in the chapters that precede it, he's begun to teach in the synagogues. He's doing miracles on the Sabbath days. And he is drawing the first waves of controversy and opposition to his ministry. Things are, are starting to heat up here for Jesus. But in, in the middle of all that action and, and things that are taking place around Jesus, verse 12 tells us that Jesus chooses to withdraw and he goes up to a nearby mountainside where it says he spends the night praying to God. And I think this single verse beautifully captures perhaps the most elemental way that Jesus pursues and possesses life. 
Right? Jesus goes after life by seeking communion, seeking worship, seeking connection with his Father. And so if, if we want to be a people who are close to the life of Jesus, then we also need to learn to follow him into those quiet spaces. Where before we get to do anything for God, we're invited first to, to just simply be with him. Right? Be in his presence. Hear his voice. We need a, a life of sustained worship. And of course, worship is, is a broad thing, right? Worship can happen in groups like it happens this morning. It can involve music. It can involve words. It can involve work and action. But there's something primary about worship that begins in adoration. Right? The life of, of worshiping God begins with a, with a kind of gazing upon him. And cultivating and growing in our sensitivity to his presence with us and to his voice. God is always there. God's always with us. He's omnipresent. But but worship is about training our gaze to to look upon him and to notice him and to enjoy him. This is what uh, the church planter Mike Breen describes as the upward dimension of our life with Jesus. Right? It's where we experience a life-giving connection with our Creator. And in, in a brief uh, chapter where, where he describes these different dimensions of the Christian life, Breen uh, shares a great quote from A.W. Tozer, who describes what, what that upward experience of worship is like. Tozer says, God has formed us for his pleasure. God meant us to see him and live with him and draw our life from his smile, right? His gazing, his affection, his pleasure in us as his children. And so to draw life from worship means spending regular time with God, enough that we know what he's like, so that we also then in turn begin to discover who we are. We are his beloved children. We are people whose identity, primary identity, is is in him, in who he is calling us and making us to be. That we are people who belong to the living God. And he is a God who is gracious and and wants to be with us. But this kind of, of prayer, this kind of worship, this kind of adoration is a spiritual discipline for a reason. Right? For most of us, in all of our, our anxious striving, in all of the other things that, that come into play, right? the, the pause of adoration and worship and just attending to the presence of God with us is not our first, maybe not even our second, our third inclination. Right? Growing into a life of worship requires intentionality, requires habit, requires repetition, And so we we have to look for ways, right, practices, things that we can do not to earn any merit or favor with God, but simply to to be with him, to attend to his love for us. And that might mean finding an early time in the morning of quiet to be with God, to begin your day. 
It might mean looking for a time later in your day, at your desk, at work, or or wherever you are, to to take five minutes and, and listen to God's voice, to just be still. It might mean finding times regularly to go for a long walk in the presence of God. Or to enjoy his presence with one another. To, to be intentional about, about listening to him. Right, the form is less critical than the focus of, of what we do. And again, the, the purpose is to open up regular, sustained, everyday spaces, everyday rhythms, where we choose to notice the company of, of a God who is always with us, always pursuing us. So that over time, the, the deepest places of who we are, the places we may be unsure or fearful to bring out and, and to show to God, we, we begin to bring those two in worship to him and, and to notice who God is so that we might be changed as well. Between sort of next Sunday and the time of Thanksgiving this fall, we'll be devoting our attention to this dimension of, of Jesus' life. How do we become worshiping beings? How do we devote ourselves to, to practices and break up new ground so that, that we're people who spend those morning hours or evening hours or, or working hours hearing from the presence of God? Luke tells us that the Jesus pursues life in worship, but as the, the morning starts to dawn, Jesus rises from that place of, of adoration and worship and abiding, and he goes down the mountain a ways to begin collecting some companions. Right, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. From the context here, we see that there are apparently quite a large group of followers that Jesus has attracted by this time. But Jesus, guided by his time of worship that evening, chooses 12 of them to become his primary community. And I think Jesus scales things down and demonstrates this intentionality because he knows that community is the space where where what we hear and receive in worship gets worked out into the the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives. Worship often is, is something we do alone, but then we need to bring what we've received into the life of community. You and I hopefully grow through the the practice of corporate worship here on Sunday mornings. But whatever teaching you receive, whatever encouragement, whatever life gets sown into you in these times of worship has to be amplified, has to be applied through the practice of real community. With people who see our good and our bad and our ugly and our broken so that we can figure out what what it means to to have the life of Jesus in in every dimension of who we are. Part of why I think community is so life-giving is also the reason it's so hard for us to do. It's because community is the place we we learn to love ourselves and love others that that are difficult to love. Henri Nouwen says, Community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. That person is always somewhere in your community. And in the eyes of others, you might be that person. Community is is given to us as a gift to discover what it it truly means to love. 
And notice Jesus picks 12. He, he makes his community intentional. But among them, right, is Judas, the one who will betray Jesus, the one who misunderstands his vision and purpose. And yet there's, there's growth and intention in that as well. So community is the place where we learn to love. As Mike Breen goes on to say, he says that the smallest indivisible unit in the kingdom of God is always two. There's no such thing as discipleship in isolation, in singularity. We always have to be walking in the company of others who are also listening to the voice of Jesus, trying to follow Jesus. We always need people who will forgive us, people who will challenge us, people who will notice where God is working in us. And so if, if worship draws us into that upward dimension of life with God, then community draws us inward, right, to experience the life of Jesus through one another. Right? It's very clear in the New Testament that we're a body of people who minister the life of Jesus to each other, right, through the gifts through the, the practice of, of forgiveness, through the sharing of, of life and mission with each other. So in the, the winter months that come after Christmas this year, we're going to take a, a period of a few months to think carefully about this dimension of life. Right? How do we choose community? How do we make space in our schedules for, for community? How do we welcome other people to be spiritual mothers and fathers to us or brothers and sisters who share life with us? How do we make our dinner tables and our living rooms an extension of what we do as a church? Right? The church isn't just this place. So we want to follow Jesus into the life of worship. We want to follow Jesus into the life of community with his body. But this morning I want to finish by looking at a third dimension of what Jesus does with these 12 friends of his that he gathers. Who followed him up the mountain right first to worship. They spent the night with him there. Then he brings them into this Christ-centered community. And then starting in verse 7, we're told that Jesus sets off in a third direction that same afternoon. He takes them out into a life of mission. You just read these verses again. He went down with them and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and all the people who tried to touch him All the people tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now if I had to guess on that morning, that that late morning after the disciples had been with Jesus, they'd enjoyed that time of worship, they, they were drawn into community, there were probably some in that group of 12 that weren't real thrilled about the idea of going down the mountain to where the, the big crowds were at. They they would have preferred to stay higher up, closer to Jesus, to extend those times of worship, to to enjoy that time of community with each other a little longer. When we find something that gives us life, sometimes we're reticent to invite other people into that, for fear that sometimes they'll spoil it or, or change it somehow. 
But Jesus is purposeful, and Jesus knows that there is even more life yet to be found down at the foot of the mountain. Right, so that's where he takes them. Takes them to this place where Luke says a large crowd had gathered. He says people from all over, right? They're, they're somewhere up in the northern part of the country. There are people from Judea and Jerusalem who have traveled to see Jesus. There are people from, from even non-Jewish regions like Tyre and Sidon who are, are sick and troubled in spirit, and they have come. And there's this, this recognition, even among the crowds, that Jesus is a person they desperately need to get close to. And so they've gathered hoping to contact, right? Hoping to to touch Jesus somehow. And if if I were with Jesus, I think I might wonder, well, how in the world do you prepare to step into a crowd like that? What makes you ready? Again, Henri Nouwen, who's written quite a bit about this passage in Luke, he says, Jesus is made ready for this moment of mission Because he was the one who was always listening to God. He says that his capacity to minister to this crowd is fueled by the life-giving time and intimacy and companionship he knows with his father. And so he says out out of that practice of living in worship and adoration and communion with God, something radiates out from Jesus that everyone could, could see and touch. And as verse 19 says here, as Jesus begins to walk through the crowds, there was power coming from him and healing them all. And what an incredible picture of the life of mission. Right? We enjoy the life of worship, we enjoy the life of community, and we enjoy the life of Jesus' mission as, as that life moves through us and out of us. And it has power to heal and to make whole. And our world may may be skeptical of religious institutions. Your friends or your neighbors may not seem all that hungry to, to turn up with you at church on a Sunday morning. But I assure you there are many, many people in your life who are longing to touch, longing to know someone like Jesus. Someone who possesses Life. Someone who is so full of life that that it radiates out from them. And I think the challenge for most of us is not necessarily receiving the, the authority that Scripture says Jesus is that person, but it's believing that, that Jesus and that power and that presence now lives and resides in us as people, as the church. Henri now and again, he challenges us to believe and to know that that ministry means that if we are a son or a daughter of God, then power can go out from us and people can be healed through, through our faithfulness in mission, making our lives available to Jesus in this way. It means believing that the life of Jesus moves in us and through us, sometimes in dramatic fashion, sometimes in actual healing, actual you know, restoration of a relationship that was broken in a, in, a, in a very acute and decisive way. And maybe more often over, over long periods of time of sustained practice of, of faithfulness 
in the mission and the spirit of God. But because we know that the, that the Heavenly Father has love for us, right, we keep looking to see the, the love he has for others. That we expect his kingdom to come in their lives in, in maybe small sometimes, but real gestures of his life and his power and his healing, again, flowing to restore people. And so next spring, after our celebration of, of Easter, the Lenten season and Easter, we're, we're going to consider what it looks like not just to be people who experience the up of life in worship, the in of life in community, but also that we're intentional about going out with Jesus in the life of mission. There's that outward expression. Let's see if I got, I think I have one more slide here. Maybe I'm not going to get there. So my prayer is that as we head into this year, you would you'd carry maybe these eight verses, nine verses, whatever they are, with you. And think about how are you walking with Jesus into the life of, of communion, of intimacy with God, of worship. How are you walking with Jesus closer to one another, deeper into that life of community with his people? And how are we being sensitive to be led out with Jesus to find his life in the practice of mission. Let me pray for us as we do those things together. Lord, would you make us a people who are willing to follow you to every place that you are. That we would love and and relish and savor those moments of quiet intimacy regularly, those rhythms of, of being filled and communing with you and adoring you, worshiping you in, in fullness of who you are. May we also look forward to and, and love the practice of being intentional to bring our lives together with other men and women of faith. Being humble enough to let others lead us and challenge us. Being available enough to, to be that person to someone else. And Lord, as you sow your goodness and life into us, may we be open for that life to move through us to our community, to those who are still lost, still longing to touch and to be restored and healed. Lord, may you fill us in every way with your life. Jesus, it's to you we come this morning. Amen.